in this particular parable, as it's called. Um, and it's a very interesting one um, that gives us a little bit of help in wedding etiquette. He said, if, if you go to a wedding and to the reception, um, here's something that would be good for you to keep in mind in terms of where you sit. Now, as I thought about this story, it reminded me of a person who has been very formative in my life. Uh, his name is Dr. Bruce Waltke. And Bruce is a phenomenal Old Testament scholar. I mean, he, he, he quotes Old Testament scripture from memory, from Hebrew. He can quote journals of theological studies, and you watch him, his eyes sort of roll back as you see him reading these journals that are on his mind, that's on his mind. Um, and he was one of my professors at Regent College. And one of the things that is well known about Bruce is that he's quite forgetful. And so there's, there are just umpteen stories about ways that his uh, absent-mindedness, um, along with his brilliance in scholarship, that his absent-mindedness showed up. So one time he was coming to Toronto, and we had a conference lined up for Bruce, and he was going to be speaking to uh, a lot of people in the city. And we arranged to meet for dinner the night before at his hotel. And there were, I think, five or six of us. And so we got there and got to the dining room and sat down and watched for Bruce to come. And it was 10 or 15 minutes late, and we wondered if, if something had gone awry and why he hadn't come to join us for dinner. So as we looked around, I got up and I, I made my way out to the lobby. And as I passed the sort of the far reach of the dining room, Here's Bruce sitting with a table of five or six people talking uh, with great animation to this group of people. And I was baffled. And um, as I went over, I said, Bruce, and he looked up and he said, oh, Ian, hello. And I said, are, are these friends of yours? He said, well, aren't they friends of yours? I said, no. He said, oh, they said Dr. Walters, and everybody gets my name wrong, so I assumed they meant me, and I sat down, and we're having a lovely conversation. So we excused ourselves from that very kind group of people who were probably wondering who this guy was. I don't know who they were. And we finally got Bruce over to the right table where we could have our conversation and get ready for the conference. I tell you that because I'm coming back to him at the very end of what I want to talk about today. Bruce Waltke, a brilliant, brilliant scholar, and uh, a lovely Christian man is uh, what I want you to get this morning. So here's what Jesus told. He said, when he noticed that all of the people who had come to a dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed, and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Good advice, isn't it? Just good practical etiquette advice. How embarrassing is it when you think that you've sat at your seat and here your seat was somewhere else and you have to sort of 
shamefacedly move and go to the lesser seat. But that story for me triggers something that just sort of has been playing in the back of my mind. It seems to me that the thing that Jesus talks about more than anything else is humility and servanthood. I, I, I can't get away from how much he talks about that. And as we look at the stories that we've been considering, how many of them are about this whole notion of humility and servanthood? So the sin or the foible of this story is the weakness of presumption, of having a presumptuous approach to life and looking for honor and respect and recognition and Jesus keeps on cutting that off at the knees, doesn't he? You can't listen to him for very long until you hear him attacking pride, religious pride and arrogance, um, the oppression of those that have power, especially religious power. He just keeps on going after it, and it just feels to me as though that's the thing that he talks about more than anything else. Here is what I've discovered in just thinking about the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Um, listen to these things. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. That's from the Beatitudes. Let me teach you, Jesus says, because I am humble and gentle at heart. Anyone as humble as this little child is the kingdom's greatest. Let them sink in. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be a servant. Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. And then the Apostle Paul picks up on this great theology, and he says, though he was God, he did not think equality with, with God to be something to cling on to. He gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave. See, I, I, I just think those verses chase us. And it just feels to me as though that's what Jesus talks about more than anything else. And if I'm not willing to deal with this, I think I'm not willing to deal with Jesus. I'm not willing to deal with who he is, how he behaved, and what he called us to. So it's not an academic notion. It's not, um, it's not you know, a, a scholastic theme that we're eking out of the writings about Jesus. Um, it's just, frankly, what he kept talking about. 
it's like if, if the frequency of his teaching about humility and servanthood that we have in the written scriptures is what it is, how much must he have actually talked about it with his disciples on, on a daily, daily basis, right? Humility. Don't be proud. Be a servant. And the disciples were fixed on trying to figure out which of them was most important, right? So there, there's this nonsensical dialogue that's going on almost all the time as they're traveling, and they'll be walking along the road arguing about which one of them is the greatest. That, that's what we're told. One time, um, the mother of two of them came to Jesus and said, I want you to grant me a favor. He said, what is it? She said, when you come into your kingdom, could you give my two boys the seats of honor at your left hand and at your right? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Right? So here are the disciples, and they are struggling every day with the question of their own importance. And every day, Jesus seems to be wanting to tear that down and have them have a wake-up call. So I think I want to put you between a rock and a hard place, right? The rock and the hard place is this. Healthy biblical self-esteem and self-discipline and sacrifice and the abandonment of entitlement. So we know that to be people who are um, bowed under the weight of things that have happened to us that have caused us to believe negative things about ourselves, that Jesus has come to free us from that. So I'm not here to call you to a place of being burdened and being you know, immobilized by, by a, a, a crashed self. But I am here to remind you that Jesus kept on talking about while we know who we are in him and because of him, we are then called to live lives of sacrifice and servanthood and humility. It, it, it is the gold standard of the Christian life to be a servant, to be humble, to yield to others before we consider ourselves. So the problem was for the disciples that every day they had to decide who was the important one. They lived in a culture of honor and shame. And some of you are from cultures where honor and shame are well understood. Um, in our culture, we, we, don't, we don't really travel with those dynamics so much. But in that day, everything had to do with the rank that you had. Every time you came to a table, it had to be decided who was the most important person, who was the least important person, because the seating chart was determined by your importance, or your importance was indicated by the seating chart. So when Jesus says, when you go to a wedding feast, be careful, they would have nodded at one another and said, yeah, we've had situations like that where we have thought I was of a higher rank than I actually was, or I thought I was of a lower rank than I really was, and boy, was it embarrassing, or boy, was it gratifying when the host sorted things out. So here we have Jesus who says, let me go right for the jugular. You are dealing every day with the fundamental question, am I important? How important am I? And how important am I as compared to you? When the disciples were arguing on the pathway 
And then Jesus outed them. He says, what were you talking about? So red-faced, they, they admitted that they were talking about who was most important. It says when the other disciples heard that, they were indignant. So here is this thing that's going on all the time with these followers of Jesus where they're having to sort out who's more important than somebody else because otherwise, how do you know where to sit when it comes time for dinner? We don't have the same dilemma, except we do. We don't have seating charts, but we have a lot of other charts, don't we? Here are the charts that I think we have. We have the job chart. We have the education chart. We have the income chart. We have the ethnic chart. We have the class chart. Some of us come from a caste chart. We have an age chart. We have a rights chart. We have a tenure chart. We have a precedent chart. And we have a fairness chart. It's not fair, right? Jesus told a ridiculous story about fairness. Here's somebody who hired workers, and then he paid everybody the same. Those that were paid who started in the morning got paid the same amount as those who started work almost when the day's work was over. And they said, this is not fair. The chart of fairness has been violated. And Jesus has the employers say, well, did we make this deal or not? So don't be complaining to me about the fairness chart. What, what chart do you have to operate with? Because I think we all have this struggle inside of our head. The struggle of how important am I? How, how significant am I? How significant is what I do? How do I relate to other people? So for some of us, it's the airplane question. What is it that you do? Because that will just help me quickly sort where you are on, on the pecking order. Right? For others, it's the education chart. Um, to what degree did you aspire and attain? Um, well, um, I have a master's degree. I have a, a doctoral degree or, or whatever it is. Um, where are you from? And, and how does that place you in the ranking, the sorting order? So th the point, I think, of this story or this scenario is Jesus is saying, you all deal with this every day. So here's my solution. Here's my directive to you. Always go to the lowest place. Practically speaking, you will save face. Practically speaking, you will not be shamed. Practically speaking, you have the chance of being honored. But then he says, and in fact... Here's the point. You won't get my kingdom until you get this. And I think that's what's settling into my heart is to say, if I don't understand this, it appears as though what Jesus is saying to me is that I, I am not going to have effect in his kingdom. I can be over in the corner trying to sort out how important I am. And Jesus would be saying to me, when you're done with that and you're willing to take the lowest place, 
then let's talk. And if you have trouble, Jesus says, can I just remind you of the example that I set? What did I do when we came in off of that dusty road? I stripped down, I took a basin and a towel, and I washed my friend's feet. Am I their Lord and Master? Absolutely. Do I deserve rank number one? Yes, it's mine. But if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you have to wash one another's feet. Why? Because it is that posture that's going to unlock the kingdom for me. Not how great I am, not what I've attained, not what I've learned, not what I have. None of that um, is the important criterion for being effective in the kingdom of God. I think what Jesus is saying is this. There's only one thing that is going to make you successful in the kingdom of God, and it is servanthood, humility. Own it, live by it, and you will have effect in my kingdom. And Paul, who sorts all these things through himself, he says, you know, if anybody had a reason to boast, if anybody could claim rank number one, guys, it was me. He was born right, he was educated right, he was religious right, and yet he said, all of that stuff, I came to understand was like dung. That's the word he uses. Compared to the excellency of knowing Christ. So he says, I follow him, and I disappear in the face of being his follower. So he says to us, take this attitude that was what Jesus had, that even though he was God, and that Philippians passage is a beautiful theological passage. He says, even though he was God through and through, so there's a, a Greek word that means the, the internal essence of a person, the, the real being, and he says, in his real being, he was God. But he took on the appearance, the outward look, of a servant, of a man, and he became a servant, and he uses the same word that he was as thoroughly God, so thoroughly he became a servant while he looked like a human being. So Paul is saying the most important thing to know about the nature of Jesus is not, it's important that he became a man, but what's incredible is that as thoroughly as he was God, so thoroughly he became a servant, and he stepped down and down and down and down to the lowest place, which was the death of a crucified criminal. And he says, because of that, God has highly exalted him. What, what's the sorting mechanism for you? What are the ways in which you can be presumptuous? And, and don't tell me it can't happen. If, if you, how many of you have ever been upgraded on an airplane? What do you expect the next time? How do I get that again? Uh, for a while, I was flying with Emirates back and forward to Africa, and once I got to fly on the A380 in business class. Spoiled me for life. I was hope. I mean, what, it's like a 14-hour flight. I was saying, fly more. Make it longer. And so the next time I ended up back in the regular compartment, I was bitter. Especially because Phil was with me on that flight, and somebody bought him an upgrade. And do you think Phil gave me his upgrade? Not a chance. Phil was up there texting me things. It's really nice up here. No. So there's, there's something in us, right, that, that leans on the sorting mechanism of our lives. And we can become presumptuous. We can think that we are better than that person for any number of reasons. 
and we can think we should therefore be entitled to something. I had a, a staggering experience um, 10 or 12 years ago. Um, I was with a group of people at a plantation in uh, South Carolina. And the plantation was owned by um, an, an Atlanta real estate tycoon. He had, he had literally bought the, the grand house of a plantation and had floated it along the uh, intercoastal to put it on 100 acres of beautiful land. Um, and he was a true southerner. He had an accent like a southerner. He had a gun collection like a southerner. And I, he showed us his gun collection. And I looked at it and going, gee, I'm not sure. You're a Christian, right? I'm not sure you should have all these guns. Um, but one of the things that's, that struck me early on was that there was a black man. And this black man, the first night that we were there, he came into where we were having dinner. And his affect was very much the sort of stooped and, and, and kind of ingratiating style. And I thought, this, this can't be right. This, it's as though we've gone back in time. And my friend here is a believer. He has a powerful story about how Jesus has changed his life. But he has a, he has a slave. Everything changed when our host said, wait, I want you to meet my friend. And he called him over. He said, uh, he takes care of all of my plantation, the whole thing. He's in charge of it all. His great-granddaddy was born as a slave on this very plantation. And our host said, do you want to know what? He and I are both deacons at the Baptist church down the street. And I thought, yes. Because whatever there had been in a new life in Christ, there was complete parody. And we believe that that's the way it ought to be, except when sometimes we could be the one that calls Trump because we have a prerogative, we have an entitlement. Jesus says, I won't have it. I won't have it in my kingdom. So I think what I'm trying to understand in what Jesus is teaching us is what this means that I cannot get the kingdom of God without constantly ridding myself of presumption, pride, privilege, and prerogative. I, I can't get it. I don't know what I can get by faith and the work of Christ for me for forgiveness and all the rest, but I certainly can't get what Jesus wants me to have if I hold on to any of these P's. It had to be P's. It's a good sermon. Presumption. When am I presumptuous? When do I just assume it's me that should have that position or it's me that should have that good or it's me that should have whatever it is? Pride is the ugly thing that is our downfall. It was the downfall of Adam and Eve who thought they knew better than God. It was the great pride of Lucifer that caused him to be chucked out of heaven and named the grand enemy of, of our God. Privilege. Boy, we have to be careful because we have such privilege in this country. And to think that somehow or other we deserve that in the face of others who have no such privilege, that we have done something, 
We were just lucky, folks. It was the luck of the draw that allowed you to be born in such a place of privilege. And it means that we cannot rest when there are others who don't have that privilege. We shouldn't. And prerogative is my propensity to think that because I'm smarter or better or whatever, it's my prerogative to make the decision. Jesus would say, nope. I'll have none of that in my kingdom. None of it. I can't get the kingdom of God without constantly ridding myself of presumption, pride, privilege, and prerogative. I need to process that. I invite you to process that. Think of ways that you sort the world around you. Think of ways that you are prone to push yourself, to manipulate, to cash in, to position yourself. Think of ways and say, how can I rid myself of this? Because according to Jesus, I can't do that and get the kingdom. I can't do that and get the kingdom. So here's what I wanted to tell you about Bruce. Um, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book, Improving Your Serve, in which he talks about Bruce Waltkin. He says this. He says, I was traveling with Bruce and a couple of other seminarians, and we visited the First Church of Christ scientist in downtown Boston. And there was a very lovely lady who was our tour guide. She showed us several interesting items on the main floor. When we got to the multiple manual pipe organ, she began to talk about their doctrine and especially their belief about no judgment in the life beyond. Dr. Walke waited for just the right moment and very casually asked, but ma'am, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible it's appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment? He could have quoted Hebrews 9.27 in Greek, but he was so gracious, so tactful with the little lady, I must confess I stood back thinking, go for it, Bruce, nail her. The lady, without a pause, said simply, would you like to see the second floor? You know what Dr. Walke said? We surely would. She smiled. She was somewhat relieved and started to lead us up a flight of stairs. I said to Bruce, hey, are you nuts? Why didn't you press the lady? Why'd you let her get away with that? He said, but Chuck, that wouldn't be very loving, would it? And Swindoll says that 10 or 15 minutes later, he saw Bruce sitting, chatting kindly with the little lady. And he said, I would have won a theological scalp. And Bruce won a friend. So I went to Regent College, having graduated from a school that was of a particular theological stripe. And I remember telling my Greek prof that I was going to go to Regent College. And he was aghast. See, the school that I went to was a Schofield Bible school. Um, it was founded by C.I. Schofield. And if you know the theology of dispensationalism and pre-tribulationalism and premillennialism, that was us. And so the right place to go after Philadelphia for me was Dallas Seminary. It's a big brother of this school, so I should have gone there. And I was going to go to Regent. And my Greek prof said, Regent is barely evangelical. If you know Regent, that, 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 that's hilarious. It's a fantastic, fantastic community of scholarship. But he said, and you know Bruce Welke teaches there. I said, I know. And Bruce had just been... Um, disenfranchised from Dallas Seminary because he was ambiguous 
on a point of theology. He was ambiguous on pre-tribulation rapture premillennialism. Some of you are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. Don't worry about it. And so my, my Greek prof said, be wary of Bruce Waltke. It didn't sit right with me. Uh, um, one thing I experienced in my undergraduate studies was a sort of an anger, a theological anger, that had everybody else wrong. And everybody who didn't agree was kind of vilified. So Bruce was the whipping boy of, of that period of time. And so I got to Regent, and one of the first classes I had was a study in the poetic literature of the Old Testament with Bruce Walkey. And the first, first thing he did when we began that class, he stood at the front and he said, now we have to pray. He said, we will never understand God's word until we're willing to stand under it. Let's stand under this lovely literature inspired by God that we might learn from him. I'm like, this guy doesn't sound like a heretic yet. And as I began to learn from Bruce and then got to be in his, his little faculty group and had him come talk at our church lots of times, I remember one time in class literally thinking, whatever he believes, I will buy if that's what it produces. So I had seen a lot of theological anger, but I hadn't seen a lot of piety. I hadn't seen a lot of servanthood. I hadn't seen a lot of humility until I met Bruce. And, and the story about him from anyone that you might ask is that he is deeply humble. So for me, as a theological student, um, his humility convinced me of his theology. And his theology is good, by the way. It's very good. Before we cross the line of faith, it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what your position is. It doesn't matter what your prerogative is. It doesn't matter what you might presume. If there's not the piety of humility in my life or yours, people are not going to want to know Jesus. I wanted to know Jesus because in that teacher, I saw the humility um, of a person who had a faith that had deep authenticity, and, and it convinced me to want to know the person that made him that way. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think that's why we can't get the kingdom if we don't get this. That what will make a difference is that we, as humble servants, take the lowest place and do it consistently and throw away our prerogatives. That is the toughest thing to do on a daily basis. It gets down to what happens in the grocery line and whether you're counting the number of items the person in front of you has, right? It says 12. She has 14. So what? Shut up. Get behind her and wait. And smile. And don't be standing there going, 13, 14. Don't be doing that. When someone takes advantage of you, let it be. You think, well, you know, I'm not sure that that's what we're called to be like. Well, then Jesus says, okay, what was I like? What did I do? Like a, like a lamb led to slaughter. He didn't revile. He didn't fight. 
he submitted. And his submission and humility were the power of conversion, the power of forgiveness. I can't get the kingdom of God if I'm still obsessed with pride, prerogative, and I'm a presumptuous person thinking I deserve something more than I have or might be being offered. So here we are. It's an invitation to get rid of all of your rights, all of your privileges. Um, I knew a church that when you became a member, you were not allowed to park in the parking lot. Give up your rights. Just one little simple discipline that says if you want to become a member here, you can't park in the parking lot. Well, that doesn't make sense. If I'm a member here, if I'm paying money here, I should get a parking spot. Nope. If you're a member here, you give up all your rights, all your privileges. That's what's going to change the world. Not being brilliant, not being powerful, not being rich. Being humble, being servants, and taking the last place and being happy with it not hoping that somebody's going to come and say, would you like an upgrade? Believe me, I've tried all the tricks to finagle my way to an upgrade. They're on to me. And they're on to you. And the world's on to you. If you're really a follower of Jesus, it's going to show up in your humility, not your prowess. Right? Do you agree? Do you want to do it? But we will, right? For the better reason of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to get how important this is for you. How Jesus modeled this perfectly and just consistently. Give us a heart for it, we pray. And uh, forgive us for so much pride and presumption. And uh, we'll look for you to be glorified and for us to fall in behind in the shadow of the person Jesus whom we love and serve. Amen.